0: Well, good morning. Will you uh, join me and we'll open up in a word of prayer. Father God, we just come before you and we just ask that you open our hearts that we may behold wonderful things out of your word this morning. And so, God, I just ask that you speak to us. And it's in the name of Jesus that I pray this. Amen. In 1697, Charles Perot, let me make sure I say this. Charles Perrault wrote "Histoires ou Contes du Temps Passé." Anybody familiar with that? I think it should be in every English reading class for sure. Uh, Maybe you're more familiar with its uh, modern-day American story of Cinderella, the story of this beautiful girl who is living with her. uh, Is that the one? Honestly, I don't know the story that well, but uh, she's like living with her ugly stepmother and ugly stepsisters and uh, politically incorrect for saying those words, I guess. But And then, you know, she wants to go to the ball because every girl deserves a ball and she's unable to go because her stepsisters are mean. So then she encounters this fairy godmother who turns uh, mice into horses and pumpkins into coaches and it's every dream, every girl's dream come true, I think. Out of all the Disney characters, out of all the Disney princesses, Cinderella is ranked as the number one Disney princess that everybody likes. Like, you know, you go to uh, Disney, the one in Florida, uh, man, I'm showing that I don't know a lot about Disney right now. Disney, which one? World is in Florida, land is in California, sure. Um, Never been to either, but you go to one of those, the one in Florida, and all the little girls are running up to see Cinderella because they they love Cinderella because it is a story that all little girls dream about. Being won over by Prince Charming. Heather's dream came true. (laughs) Nah, she's still having dreams about that. But you know, Perrault wrote this story in 1697, and then in 1950, Disney took over and they put it in Cinderella time. But really this is a story that goes back centuries before, to really the early 10th century BC, where Solomon writes Song of Solomon. And he is writing about this, about this Shulamite girl, who is not like well to do, she's working in a vineyard, she looks down on herself, she says that she is dark in an era where everybody wants to be pale skinned, because that is the mark of beauty at that time, but she's working in a vineyard, so she's got darker skin, she's looking down upon herself, and then this shepherd approaches to her, and man, her heart falls for him. And she asks him who he is and she asks him about his flocks. And he, he just responds by saying, you are beautiful and I love you. He sweeps her off her feet. And so then he leaves and she has these dreams about him where he, he comes and he goes away and she can't find him. So she's searching for him and she's unable to find him. And then finally she finds him like she's dreaming about him. And then one day there's this procession coming. And they realize that it is a royal procession and everybody is going crazy because it's King Solomon. But all she cares about is her shepherd. That is the only man that she cares about. They they can go see King Solomon. She wants to see her shepherd. But then she hears that Solomon is calling for her to come and be with her. And she goes into his escort and she looks and behold before her is Solomon Solomon who is also her shepherd. And everybody's heart is melting. And it's like, oh, what a beautiful story. And, And there's a printout of the story because like I said last week, I am not poetic at all. And Song of Solomon is written in poetry form. So as I'm reading through it, I'm like, huh? Like I have no idea what's being said. And so there is a narrative format that is PG rated as well. Because this is probably one of those sermons and those topics that I've been asked a lot. How are you going to handle that? And it's like very delicately, because I know what we're talking about. But we are going to be in Song of Solomon this morning. As we continue on to look at these Old Testament passages, and again, there's deeper meaning behind all of them. They're all written to specific people at specific times, but they have theological importance for us here today that God has preserved them in his word for us to see Jesus. Because multiple times throughout the New Testament, Jesus is even talking about you have Moses and you have the prophets and they point to who I am. So you should know about me just based on the Old Testament even that it all points to who Jesus is. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning as we look at the Song of Solomon, which is in your notes, the very first thing, the audience, it is a love song that Solomon is writing to his beloved bride. It is called the Song of Solomon, or some versions probably say the Song of Songs. Both of those can be correct because it's based out of Solomon, Song of Solomon 1.1 in which it says, the song of songs, that is Solomon's. So we're told in 1 Kings that Solomon wrote 1,005 songs. And what we are being told here is this is the epitome of his songs. It is the greatest of his works. It is the song of all songs. Like I remember when I was growing up, I got told, even though I'm not musically uh, smart by any means, That if I could play Every Rose Has Its Thorn on a Guitar, I was guaranteed that I would be able to get the woman of my dreams. I never played it for Heather, and look, I still happened. Proof of God. But it was like apparently that's the song that will win a woman's heart over. This is the song of all the songs that Solomon is writing to his beloved bride. And the author is Solomon. He is the one that wrote it. And the date, even though we don't really know the exact dating, there's nothing specific in there. A lot of people believe that it was written early on in Solomon's life. Like of his three works, Solomon wrote Song of Solomon, he wrote Proverbs, and he wrote Ecclesiastes. And when you read them, you can kind of understand the belief that these scholars have when they date them. Because they believe that Song of Solomon was written early on right as he became king when he is a young king and he is in love with his first love and then proverbs is written later on after he has become a father himself in the middle of his reign when he is giving wisdom to his son and he says multiple multiple times my son listen to my words listen to my instruction and then ecclesiastes as we studied through it a while ago and you read it it no hope, because in 1 Kings chapter 11, we are told that Solomon's many wives led him away from God. That they turned his heart against God, and he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so it, it makes sense. When he's young, he's writing about love. When he's a father now, he's writing about training up his child in the way that he should go. And when he is old, after his wives have turned his heart away from God, he is writing about where is the hope in the world. I looked for it in all these things, and I could not find it. And so you have Early in his reign, the middle of his reign, and in the later years of his reign. The main people that you'll read about in the Song of Solomon is you have the bride, who is a Shulamite. You have the groom, or the king, who is Solomon. And then it is a song, and so there's these refrains in there that are sang by a chorus, or the daughters of Jerusalem. The literary genre it's kind of viewed in three different ways about what is the genre that Solomon is writing in here. The one that everybody agrees on is it is poetic. You can understand that just by reading it. So in poetry, there are a lot of metaphors. Him seeing her teeth, and the only thing I could think of is like your teeth are like dentine ice tablets, like they're beautifully white, but that's not what he says. He says something way more romantic But he is using metaphor to describe aspects of her. And then there's also oriental imagery, where he's also in that using things of Eastern culture. So when we read it, he's like, we'll go there. He's like, your breasts are like two fawns. And it's like, well, that's weird. But in his time, that made sense. He's like, your neck is like the cedars of Lebanon. Like, Heather, your neck is like a fir tree. I don't know what that means I don't know what the cedars of Lebanon mean either other than those were really good trees back then but it's like okay it's oriental imagery I'm sticking my foot in my mouth a lot this morning too but we'll go from there so also there are three views that they have with it though the first off is that it is strictly allegorical and what that means is that everything in it just means something else There is a deeper meaning to everything. It is all allegory. It all stands for something deeper. There's nothing true to it. The other kind is extended type, in which they say this really happened, but Solomon is writing it with deeper meaning behind it. And then the third view is the literal historical of this really happened, and Solomon is writing this about his bride, and God is able to preserve it and give us meaning into it as well. And so those are the three views of people when they're trying to figure out what writing Solomon is doing here. And then typologies, the one that we have is the bridegroom. When you see the bridegroom, you see Christ portrayed. And we'll get to that here in a little bit. And then the main theme that you have is love. Obviously, it is love. You see the bride's love for the groom, and you see the groom's love. For the bride. And in this, what we do see is a picture. The Jews, they pictured it as God's love for his chosen people. The Jews, and then as the Christ came and established the church and engrafted the Gentiles into the His chosen people, it now became Christ's love for the church. And so love is the main theme. So a couple other facts about it. And then we'll get to the real meat of the message. It is read every year at the first of the Passover of the Jews. Every year. This is the one passage that they read at the first of the Passover of Jews. They, they read other ones too, but this is a specific one. It is probably the most abused book in the Bible because of the contents that it has. That when you read about it, people take that and they will abuse it. So much so that the Jews actually would not let men read it until they turned 30. Because of the mature content and where it could drift minds to go and everything. And so much so also that churches avoid it very much. Because it really does deal with some rather sensitive topics. So we're going to try and handle it delicately, but there's two things that I think if we just breeze over this, like would be a lot less embarrassing for me if it was just like, you know what? Well, we don't have time, so we won't do Song of Solomon. We're going to miss two things, and I think they're very important. The first off is that we live in a world where the church is pushing don't. Don't have sex, and they're doing it for a right reason I believe because the world is perverting it and so the church is pushing this don't 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 so much so that it can ingrain in your mind oh it's bad I need to avoid it and it is potentially ruining weddings and marriages where what we see in Song of Solomon is that when it is in the realm of what God is establishing it in the confines of marriage it is a blessing And God is saying, go for it, enjoy it. In Song of Solomon, chapter five, verse one, he says, Solomon says, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. And then you see this refrain by others. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. And it says others there, but we're talking about an intimate space in the room. And so it's not other people being there. People believe this is God giving his blessing, which he does when it is in the context of marriage, when it is in his will. He says, it is a beautiful thing. And this is what you were created to do. He says, be fruitful and multiply. There's one way to do that. And he says, in the confines of marriage, It is a blessing. Eat, drink, and be drunk with love. Then the other thing that we are very much missing, if we just totally overlook Song of Solomon, is we are missing a love story of God for his people. We are missing a song of how much God cares for you. In a world where, honestly, this week I had mental struggles, like crazy. I mean, like I was in this battle of my mind and it's like um, Ephesians chapter two, where he's like, you were carrying on the, not Ephesians two, we'll go Romans seven. That's a better one where Paul is like, I don't do the things I wanna do and the things that I don't wanna do, I keep on doing. And that happened in my mind, where it was like, I'm not wanting to think on this, but I keep dwelling on it. And I don't want to, but I keep, and I wanna focus on this, but I can't. And there was a moment where it was like, God, he's gotta be so upset with me. Like, he's got to be looking down at me like, you sorry, pathetic creature. And then I got to read Song of Solomon. And I got to hear God's love for his people. I almost thought, why am I speaking after Paul gave that meditation? Because it's exactly what he said, that God loves you. And if you overlook Song of Solomon, you are overlooking God expressing his love for his people. Because if you want to see the breakdown really of God's love for God's people, he gave us a great example of it in marriage. He said this is how when people look at, especially believers, when people look at a believer's marriage, they should see a representation of God's love for his people and his people's love for him. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is called the bride of God. Throughout the New Testament, the church is called the bride of Christ. It is the example that God has left for us of how we relate to God and how he relates to us. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, it tells us when Paul is talking about marriage, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word and so what paul is telling us is he addresses women first and he says wives when when people look at you they should see a representation of how the church submits and honors and respects god and lives for him a pretty high task to take that god has established it that way that that is the representation women represent his church where we are called to submit such a nasty six-letter word today but yet God says when it is in the confines of my will it is a beautiful thing that honestly as the church I have no problem submitting I struggle with it let me make that clear but I want to submit to God I want to follow him. I want his church to follow him. And when the church submits to God, things go well. And when the church steps out of God's will, things start to fall apart. The same thing for marriages. When wives are not wanting to step out, which is a result of the fall. It is the curse that God says that women will struggle for the position of the men. There's going to be that friction going on. That when women step in and submit and follow and honor their husbands, it will go well. So much so that even in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he says, even if your husband is unbelieving, you should still Do this because in doing so you could win him over, and it is a beautiful representation of that. And then he goes to men think the women have it tough? Men, you are the representation of Christ to the church, you are to be the head of your family, to lead them and guide them. And notice what Paul said die to yourself, husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So many husbands are leading and even in churches are leading for selfish gain. They're, they're like, well, she doesn't deserve that. I'm too tired. I'm going to come home. She needs to understand. I just don't have time. And it's like, no, you come home and you die to yourself to lift her up because Christ died for the church. That this is the representation that God gave for husbands, and there is great pressure on it. That the world is perverting marriage and diluting it, and it's time for the church to reclaim it. It's time for the church to come back and say, we are going to enter into this covenant. Do you understand the covenant that you make? I promise to take you in sickness and in health, for better or worse, weaker or worse. Richer or poorer, whatever they are. Those are some pretty serious vows that you're making. And you're making them before God. And you're saying, this is not going to separate. So much so that Jesus says, what God has brought together, let not man separate. And so we are called as the church, as marriages in the church, to represent God's love for his people and his people's love for The church. And husbands, that means dying to yourself and lifting her up. Why? Why did Jesus do it? Because he loves you. Because that's what we see in Song of Solomon. We see that love song that God has for his people. That Zephaniah says that the Lord your God is in your midst. He's a mighty one who will save. He rejoices over you with gladness. He will quiet your soul, quiet you by his love. He will exalt you with loud singing. He sings over you. He rejoices over you. He loves you. Like you think, like, kind of like Paul was saying, like, it's blurred vision. Like, I might think I understand the love of God, not even close. You might be like, yeah, I understand, and Jesus loves me. This I know. The Bible tells me so. It's like, no. He loves you so much. He rejoices over you with gladness. He exalts you in singing. He is singing this song about you. He loves you so much that as you're holding that cup and that bread, he gave his life for you. Knowing everything about you, knowing the struggles I was going to have this last week, he knew about them knowing that his bride, as Hosea tells us, was going to go off and commit adultery and be loved by another man and give herself over to him. And yet he tells Hosea, go after her, that Jesus is pursuing you because he loves you so much. He is running after you. I heard one pastor, he was talking about it, that like, and I I can relate to this. He and his wife were walking one evening and he he made some snippy comment. And his wife didn't backhand him. Instead, she just started walking off. She like ran away from him. She was like, fine, that's how you wanna be. I'm gonna run away. And he was like, fine, have at it. And then he got to thinking, I know what part of town we're in and it's not a good part. Bars are on the windows and everything. And so he was like, I'm running after her. He ran after his wife because of a sin he committed. Have you ever thought Jesus runs after us because of a sin we committed? That he is relentlessly pursuing after us, knowing everything about us. And he says, I love them. He loves you so much that John 3.16 says, he gave his only son that if you believe In him you shall not perish, but have eternal life. You see, here's the thing that every single one of us has in common. We are all searching. We are all searching for something. A lot lot of people are searching for somebody that they can live the rest of their life with. Some people are just searching for somebody to give them a temporary satisfaction. We are all searching for something. I looked it up. There are 366 million people on dating apps. There are over 8,000 dating apps alone. Farmers only, Christians only, eHarmony. Those are the three big ones I know of. There are 8,000 more. The swipe left, swipe right one, whatever that one is. But... We are searching for relationship. But the problem is, is that so many people, and even in the church, we think, oh, I have found the one whom my heart desires. They're going to satisfy everything I need. I will find completeness in them. And the thing is, is that's wrong. No matter how perfect Heather is, she cannot fill in my heart the thing that only God can fill. No matter how perfect I am, not true, but... We're all searching for something, and we're trying to fill it with people and relationships, and it's like there's only one thing that can truly fill it, and that is Jesus. I mean, look at Hollywood, for example. Here you have supermodels, and you have all these good-looking plastic surgery people who are getting married with the money, the fame, and it's like, oh, if, if, if the perfect life exists, I think it looks like that. And yet they have a divorce rate of twice that of the average person. Because they have it all and they're filling it with all this stuff, but yet it's dissolving because it doesn't last. Because our hearts are looking for the one who can truly satisfy our desires. And that's only Jesus that we're going to keep looking, but Jesus is the only one that can truly fill the longing of our heart, and we see that in the Song of Solomon. And also in the Song of Solomon, we see played out the church and Jesus. What I mean by that, and Pete, good luck following this, I'm jumping around here, but we see this in Song of Solomon chapter 2 verse 16, where they say, my beloved is mine, I am his. He grazes among the lilies. What do we know about the church? This is talking about the bride, the church. We know that church loves the groom. That we love Jesus, that we can say we are his. That Isaiah tells us that he has imprinted our names on his palms, that they are pierced in his hand. How can he forget us? We are on his palms. We belong to him. But here's the thing about the church. And I'm going to go a little more personal. Here's the thing about me individually, and maybe you also. Song of Solomon 1 5. She says, I am very dark. Yeah, I'm lovely, but I'm dark. I don't measure up to the standard. I understand my unworthiness. Why would he love me? Why would this shepherd choose me when there are so many other women that are fair-skinned and the epitome of beauty? Why would he choose me? Revelation 19.8 tells us, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So even though we have all these imperfections, I mean, you look at Cinderella, and she is in rags, and she's scrubbing, and she's dirty. And then comes along Jesus, and he clothes her in beauty. He gives her a white dress representing purity so that Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed our transgressions from us, that he clothes us in beauty isaiah 61 tells us that the beauty is as a bride adorns herself in jewels that that is how beautiful he has made the church that he looks at his people and he doesn't see our flaws and our imperfections he sees beauty he sees the bride that he loves and then revelation 22 verse 17 It says the spirit and the bride, they both say, come. That there's the invitation for all to come and be a part of the bride of Christ. The spirit and the invitation are both inviting you, come. So that's the bride. And then we have Jesus. Song of Solomon 4, 7 tells us about the bride. Yeah, I can't find it. Oh, there it is. And he says, see, he says, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Here I am, and I'm like, oh, God, you're not looking close enough, apparently. I got a lot of flaws. But yet, look at how Jesus looks at us. He says, there is no flaw in you. You are altogether beautiful. Beautiful. Isaiah 62, 5 says, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, again, here we see, so God rejoices over you. Ephesians 5, we read this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then Matthew 25, 6, it says that here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. We see that the bride is coming back to take us home. And so what we're told is there is going to be a wedding. There is going to be a marriage feast. We are the bride of Christ, and there is going to be this marriage feast. And Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 22 what that is going to be like. He says it in this parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven, verse 2, may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then they said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there's five things that we can see about the marriage feast according to that parable. The first one, verse 2, is it is prepared by the father for the son. That there is going to be a marriage feast where Jesus comes back to take us home eternally. Verse 4 tells us that he killed the fattened oxen and the fattened calf. He It is going to require costly preparations. It is going to be beautiful and it is going to be a feast when we get to go there. Verse 5 tells us that people were busy. Some went to their business, some went out to the field. People made Excuses. That God is offering the invitation, but a lot of people are like, ah, not today. I have better things I want to do. Ah, not today. I don't believe in that. Whatever it is, God is inviting, and people are rejecting Him. Verse 10, it tells us that those servants went out to the roads. It started with the people on the list, and then He said, go out into the roads. And gather all whom they found. Find both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. It's not just going to be the religious elites. But it's going to be all people are invited. That Jesus does not care your history. He says, come to me and I will make you new. Behold, the old is gone and the new has come. Everybody is invited. But then he also has some harsh warning. At the end of it, in verse 11, he says, "'The king came and looked at the guests, "'and he saw one who had no wedding garment.'" Remember, we're told when we come into Jesus, he clothed us in a new garment. And he said, "'Friend, how did you get in here "'without a wedding garment?' The guy was speechless. So the king said to the attendants, "'Bind him hand and foot, "'and cast him into outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's only one way you're gonna get there. And that's through Jesus Christ. It's not gonna be because of religious responsibilities or because of your ethnicity or your social class or anything like that. You can only get there through Jesus Christ. And he says, if you do not come through Jesus Christ, he says, he will be cast out into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. But there's good news, that he said the invitation is sent out to all. That in Revelation chapter 22 verse 17, the invitation is the same, regardless of who you are. The spirit and the bride, they say simply, come to Jesus. And let the one who hears say, come. So let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires, take the water of life, I love this next word, without price, it is free, it is the free gift offered to you through Jesus Christ, because God so loved you that he gave his only son, that if you believe in him, you will not perish, but you will have eternal life. Father God, thank you for your love that God honestly is so undeserving by every single one of us in here. But yet, God, you say that you look upon us and you see no flaw, but you see us as beautiful. God, may we understand that. And therefore, may we just live in the security of your love. God, not trying to earn it, but walking in it. And God, you've offered the invitation to all. You've said, come. And so if there be anybody here who is trying to sneak into the wedding feast under some other garment that is not the blood of Jesus, God, let them come through Jesus, placing their faith in him. And then God, may the rest of us who have received eternal life in Jesus just live as your people, glorifying you in everything we do. And God, when we don't, I wanna say thank you for grace. It's in the name of Jesus we pray this. Amen.